Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to You Know It's Fake, right? The ongoing battle with the dirtiest four-letter word in professional wrestling, and I am your host. My name is Brian Breaker, and I am already throwing you a curveball. If you are reading the episode description, you already know what's happening. Um, I am the guest this week. I am going to be interviewed by Jeff from Fully Posable. Jeff turned the turntables on me, as uh, as we said, as a truck drives by, hopefully <laughs> hear that too well it was like right as i was talking i'm like well that's fantastic um very explosive huh right you guys see the uh just see, see the exploding barbed wire death match wow um i normally don't crap on stuff but I, and that maybe this is just me and this is something i'm sure i'll talk about in a future episode because obviously these interviews are already pre-recorded so it's not something we're gonna discuss discuss there but as a pro wrestler, I didn't like to have things I couldn't control as part of the match. And that's why. Because it doesn't matter how brutal the match is, how barbaric the match is. That's the last thing people remember, is that. And it's going to get replayed and replayed and replayed because of, quite honestly, how bad it looked. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. But, I mean, I thought Moxley and Omega had a great match. But why make it exploding? Because, I mean, I think we all get that it, there's kind of a work involved with that, right? I mean, you hit the ropes, the pyro's cued, explosion. I mean, but a barbed wire match is just as brutal without an explosion. So, I don't know. It is what it is. But we can talk all, all day long about what's happening currently in wrestling. Overall, I thought the AEW pay-per-view was very good. I just got a new TV. If you follow me on Instagram or Twitter, you probably saw that. So, I got to watch... a. Uh, Got to watch the pay-per-view on my new TV, which was a lot of fun. 75-incher. When I went bigger, I went home. And I was like, you know what? Going big. So, uh, it was a lot of fun to check that out and kind of see what AEW offered. Christian Cage signed, as well as Ethan Page. Uh, Ethan Page is a guy, he left Impact recently. I kind of thought he would turn up in AEW, so good for him. Uh, Christian Cage was kind of heavily rumored, right? I mean, no one really, I don't think anyone necessarily expected that, but... Yeah, you're like, wow, just shows up in the Royal Rumble after all this time away from the industry, and bam, he's back in AEW. How how weird. But you know what? Good for him. I hope he gets some uh I hope he gets some good matches there. I hope he gets some uh you know, kinda I th- I feel like it's probably a last run for him, so hopefully he kinda gets to wrap things up how he wants to. So I'm I'm excited for him. That's I think that's awesome. But I don't want to touch on that too much. We always talk about that on Power Hour. I was just kind of, it was just on my mind. So I thought I'd throw it out there. But uh, this week, like I said, Jeff from Fully Posable is going to interview me. So why not? Let's, uh, let's, let's pause it here and I'm going to send it over and uh, get my conversation with Jeff from Fully Posable. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to You Know It's Fake Right. I am Brian Breaker, and today the tables are turning. Yes, that is right. We are going to ch- already change the format up a little bit. I am on the line with the only man that does not like radical skedaddle bang. Uh, Bill <laughs> Benis calls him Jeff with one F. He's the host of the Fully Posable Wrestling Figure Podcast. Good friend of mine, Jeff Toon. Jeff, what's going on, man? I am doing well over here, Breaker. Uh, well, the, Benis doesn't count. He's already off PHPW, so it does. He doesn't really count anyway. So, oh yeah, he's he's out of here. Gonski, love it. <laughs> that guy slapped me last time I saw him. I cannot wait to kick him in the face. Oh man, that was a stiff slap. Yes, it was, and it really stung coming from Bill Benis. You know what I mean? It's not even so much that it hurt. It's just the like, how dare you think you can do that to me? You know. It, it hurt more of your pride and your ego than anything else, I guess. It did. It did. And so anyway, let's <laughs> uh, kind of get on, on track with what we're doing here today. Um, I was I was all set to, to talk to you on this new show, which I was, I was excited about. And you hit me with a curveball. You're like, well, what about this? And you want to actually interview me for my own show. And I was like, well, actually, that could be kind of fun. And you actually are much more of a prepared podcaster than me. you got all kinds of questions and everything. So... Man, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah. So, yeah. So what happened was, is you've interviewed Scott, you've interviewed me, you've interviewed the both of us numerous, numerous times. So I thought, you know, it would be fun for your show to actually talk about stuff that you have experienced life on the road of wrestling. I mean, being a professional wrestler that you were for, I think you were 12 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. uh, Yeah. 12 years or so since 2007. Yeah. So I always felt that it would be fun to interview you, uh, giving road stories, behind-the-scenes stories. And a lot of fans like that stuff. They love to hear behind-the-curtain stuff. And obviously, some stories will be, you know, you'll take with you to the end of time. But at the same time, it's just it, it's fun hearing the stories that you have, and especially coming from you that has, has experienced so much. Um, you've been to Japan. You've been to NXT. You've been to... You've been all over, so you I know you have a bunch of stories ready to go for something like this, just on a drop of a dime. Well, I mean, if you remember uh, about a year ago, uh, after Harley passed away, I was on your guys' show, and I just kind of kept telling Harley stories, and I kept thinking yep. of new ones as the show went, <laughs> because that's kind of how it is. Like You just kind of have this Rolodex of, of hilarious stories and, and just experiences um, cause I've always, I've always told people, I felt like my wrestling career was like a lifetime of, of memories and stories that a lot of people may have not ever, you know, been able to, uh, to experience. Cause I experienced so much in such a, like a short period of time, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually that's a great way to start, start it off. How about telling another Harley story? Harley story, man. There's so many, um, one of my, <laughs> one of my first, memories of of Harley I uh, I was 21 and I started training uh here in Tulsa where I'm from and the school was not a very well-ran school it was kind of you know I'm not trying to dog it or anything but I just knew it wasn't a place that was going to get me to like the next level which I knew I wanted to get to and I, I knew at that point I'm like I need to go to like a legitimate school like with training multiple days a week you know multiple rings that whole thing Mm-hmm. And so did a little bit of research and I found, you know, the Harley race wrestling Academy, which I knew I knew about, but I hadn't really thought about. And uh, I was like, Oh, that's in Missouri. That's not too terribly far. That's three or four hours away. 
And Harley, on his website, talked about he had connections with WWE, which was true. He had connections with TNA, which that kind of subsided when he uh, went under a WWE deal. But, you know, at one point, you know, he had several guys get get looks over in TNA and stuff like that. He, of course, (laughs) had uh, ties with Pro Wrestling Noah in Japan. And really, if you think about it, what other wrestling school had that many ties to that many top companies in, in wrestling? He also had ties to Ring of Honor. A lot of people don't realize that, but... He, you know, Go Shiozaki from Pro Wrestling Noah wrestled a lot in Ring of Honor. Most of that was done through Harley. Um, so he had connections to a lot of different places and will always go down as one of the most respected uh, performers in the in the industry. Everybody respected Absolutely. Harley Race. Absolutely. So I get, you know, the phone number and, you know, write it down from the computer because this is before iPhones and all that stuff. <laughs> and so I, I call and I assume that for, and I don't know why I thought this, I guess, but I just assume the Harley race wrestling Academy is going to be like the WWE performance center. It's going to be this huge, massive building, full-time employees. this like huge operation. I didn't realize it was like him and his wife, you know? And then <laughs> one of the wrestlers did office work too. And that's it. So I call and I hear on the other end of the, the phone, World League Wrestling. I had never heard Harley <laughs> talk really, but it was no denying that's who that was. Scared me to death, so I just hung up. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I took a while, I got some courage, and I called back a couple of days later and actually talked to his wife, BJ, who um, BJ was very rough in a lot of ways, but was a very, she was a very, giving person to like, like, like a lot of people don't know this. My very first pair of wrestling tights, her and Harley paid for. Um, Oh yeah. Like she, she did a lot of things to, to really help us out. She, she was the type, like my very first show, I had a whole bunch of family come. So she had Harley put me over in a battle Royal. Like I know that that was her. Like she did a lot of things because I think she liked me because I didn't cause any problems like some of the guys did. And uh-huh. just, a, just a very sweet lady. And um, like if, you did, if she didn't like you, she was not the sweetest lady, let me tell you. But she, she definitely <laughs> uh-huh. liked me, so that always, that always helped. But yeah, WLW was where I started in 07. Kind of an interesting who's who in wrestling. The Beer City Bruiser from Ring of Honor was there at the time. Uh, Richie Steamboat, who had a little bit of a run in NXT, was there. Joe Henning, who became Curtis Axel, was there. Ted DiBiase Jr. had just left to go to FCW when I got there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, quite a few guys who had done some stuff in wrestling. Trevor Murdoch was on the road full time, but he'd still stop in every now and then and help us out. So a lot of people came through WLW. And I really attribute a lot of my, I, I don't want to say success because that sounds weird, but a lot of my aptitude for wrestling to having a good school like that because it, it built a huge foundation. Because so many wrestlers don't have the foundation they need. And if they get it's it's like getting an opportunity in wrestling. If you don't have a foundation built, it's just not gonna be successful. And right. at the end of the day, I always knew like, well, if I am I gonna be the most in shape guy? Am I gonna be the tallest guy, the strongest guy, the best body? No. Am I gonna have the best promo? No. But I do know I can I can hang in the ring with anybody because of the foundation that I that I had built at WLW. And you know, that led to me getting, you know, tryout matches in WWE, runs in Japan, you know, contract with NXT and a lot of stuff. So 
I'm definitely I'm definitely proud that I was able to be a part of, you know, World League Wrestling and develop a, a relationship with Harley during that time. Mm-hmm. It was something I'll, I'm definitely glad I did. And I, I was there actually for five years, but it was a uh, it was a fun time for sure. So before we get into Japan and FCW and slash NXT, do you remember your very first match for WLW? Do you remember the nerves? Do you remember who you worked with? Uh, give us a little background going into that match. Oh, I, I definitely remember. Uh, it was, it was against a guy named Din T Moore, uh, who, uh, would go on to become the beer city bruiser. A lot of people oh, okay. know, know him from ring of honor. Uh, I trained with him a lot. He definitely helped me out a lot. It was always really good to, um, like he bumped for me a lot. And a lot of people don't realize how taxing that is on the body, but to have a guy there to body slam, to suplex, to, you know, show me how to, you know, here, here, this is how you go over the top rope. Here's how you take a clothesline over the top rope. Doing all these things for me all the time this is always something I appreciate. And we had our, I had my first match with him. And I remember him just giving me so much of a heads up of how this is going to be. He's like, so two minutes in, you're going to be completely blown up. And I'm like, no way, come on. You know, we're in good shape. And he was right because of, of your nerves and you don't realize right. how that's going to uh-huh. be. And um, I remember a guy actually told me when I went to Japan, he goes, after your first match, you'll feel like your lungs are on fire. And he was right. You just feel like you just fire inside because of, of how, how many nerves you have doing stuff like that. So that was my very first match. Um, and just just a great dude. And um you know, it wasn't now, probably the best first match, but it was it was pretty solid for what it was. Now, did you guys uh, did you guys go over everything in the back? Like you were gonna get, he told you you were gonna get a lot of offense in, and uh, just uh, take us through how you guys kind of set up the match. Like, was it? I don't know how much time you guys were given. So at that time, that? we were actually doing like access television, like a like a, like almost like a syndicated TV show. So they were pretty strict on times. Okay. It's so like eight minutes probably would be my guess is what we had. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be exact, but they want it to be like, the, if they say eight, don't go 12, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he set up a few things like this, this, and this. And, you know, like the match has a formula, you know, there's a cutoff, there's a, you know, we go home spot, things of that nature. And mm-hmm. he, he kind of set up, here's what we're going to do here, here's what we're going to do here. But it's kind of, most of my matches, especially coming from where I trained in, it was always laid out in a very vague way. We'll do something like this, boom, 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 and then we'll do our heat, and then we'll do this, and then we'll go to our go-home spot, and that's the finish. That's gotcha. kind of how things were laid out for us, because if you lay out every little detail, that is incredibly hard to remember. I know a lot of guys do that and my hat's off to them. It's not really my thing, but it's hard to do. So I've Mm -hmm. always kind of been trained in the way of we're not going to lay out every detail. We're going to lay out a small number of things and kind of put it together as we go. And, you know, because maybe something gets a good reaction. So you want to take a second to let that breathe. Stuff like that. So. But it was also nice to – it calms – like I've done that a lot with uh, young guys uh, that I've wrestled that are new. Mm-hmm. I don't put a lot together with them, and I can tell it makes them nervous. But instead of trying to remember the next thing, they're just listening. And that usually equates to a better 
match because they don't go in full, completely full of nerves. Because when you go in full of nerves, it's very easy to forget everything you're trying to do. Well, they uh, Steamboat always talks about when they, Savage and him were going to do the WrestleMania three match. Savage had everything lined up. Right. Like you had to do this, this, and this. And I was looking and thinking, how do you even remember? What spot is next? You know, I mean, yeah. how do you even remember everything like that? That's just amazing to me. And you want what's funny uh, is Steamboat was actually a trainer of mine in NXT. And you want the very first thing was it said on the piece of paper Savage gave him? What? Lock up. <laughs> He's like, we're professional wrestlers. You don't need to write lock up. You know, like that was kind of his, <laughs> his take on it. But I mean, the match stands the test of time, but so does Flair and Steamboat. And I know they didn't do that. Yeah. So Flair, it's kind of, Flair everyone's got their show. style. Everyone's got their way of doing things. It is what it is, but it just, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to me how, um, everybody works differently, but you can't look at someone like Randy Savage and say, Oh, that guy didn't know what he was doing. Cause he clearly did, but so did Correct. Ric Flair, but very different. Now getting back to you, do you remember the very first time you were on the road, you were going to another town doing another uh, show and something happened and you were like, well, that's going in the Rolodex of things that have happened on the road. Do you remember? And what was that very first thing that happened? Man, it's hard to think of the very first thing that happened. But honestly, with WLW, every show we did was a road show. We traveled for everything. So uh-huh. so basically day one, we're on the road. And I remember we we rode with this guy. He was from Iowa. His name was Eric. I'll never forget this guy because he was training the same time I was. And he was about 6'6", but had like zero muscle on his body. And so his nickname (laughs) became Ogre. (laughs) Because he was like this big tree walking around like... like, I mean, he was a nice guy, but just not really cut out for the wrestling business. And uh, Uh we were all driving. It was actually me, and it was Ogre, and then Dinty Moore, Beer City Bruiser, and I think somebody else. I can't remember who that fourth person was, but that day we stopped to eat at Arby's on the way to the show. And -hmm. on the way back, I said something about McMahon. We shouldn't have eaten at McDonald's earlier. It's not really sitting well. And Ogre looks at me and he goes, we didn't eat at McDonald's. We We ate at Arby's. So as soon as, as beer city realized what I was doing, he was like, no Ogre, we ate at McDonald's. And he was like, no, we, we ate at Arby's. And I was like, no, he didn't. And we're both looking at him like he's insane. And he's like, you guys are just messing with me. We ate at Arby's. And I'm like, no, we didn't. <laughs> and um, and he, I was like, okay, if we ate at Arby's, what did I have? And he goes, you had like uh, this, this, or this. And I'm like, I don't even like that. And then he kind of looks at me all puzzled <laughs> like, what? And it got, we did this for probably 45 minutes. And we finally knew we had him when he sat there. And he goes, I could have sworn we ate at Arby's. <laughs> And we just kept it going the whole ride. Never even told him like, no, we had it. We had it. Arby's. We were just messing with you. But that was just, I think sometimes when you're on the road like that, you have to do things to entertain yourself. And also when you're on the road, you also travel with a lot of veterans Yes. and everybody talks about how that car ride with the veterans is so important. It's so key in learning a lot of the stuff in the business. What veterans did you travel with outside of Harley that gave you just sound advice being a young wrestler like yourself at that time? So many guys. You know, I remember there was a guy named Steve Anthony who still wrestles over in like the Louisiana area. 
he's a guy that I don't really understand how he never got like a legitimate break because he mm-hmm. was so good in the ring. And he was already probably 15 years in when I kind of first started and getting to, to pick his brain and talk to him. I, I did travel with him a bunch and uh, so many, I mean, so many different people um, because that's, and that's part of it. But another place that a lot of people don't think about that you kind of bond and talk about wrestling is when we would all go out to eat after training. Cause we train Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So oftentimes it's like, Hey, let's go up to the Chinese buffet tonight. You know, cause there was not a, where I, where we lived in Eldon, Missouri, there was not a lot of food options. So mm-hmm. pretty much every night of the week, we would all go grab dinner somewhere. And I remember just, we would all just kind of talk about different things and, you know, usually shit on the guy that sucks, but it's kind of par for the course for wrestling and just kind of talking about this is what we need to do. And this, this should be better. Or what if you tried this or what if you tried that and kind of getting different um, ideas or perspectives from people to, to how like you can make the, your character better. You can get to be a better performer. What you think this guy should do. And that's mm-hmm. also too, like, because in WLW, no one was real selfish. Like everybody wanted the next guy to be better because then you have a new guy kind of in the mix, like a new guy to work with and you can kind of freshen up the shows and get people going and stuff like that. And to me, that was always such a cool thing is when a new guy would come up and you kind of get to have a good match with them, kind of feel them out and like, okay, I think this guy's going to be good and and stuff like that and helping guys at training and, and stuff like that. It was a lot of hands-on at WLW. Like everybody wanted me to be better so that I could have good matches with them. And, mm-hmm. and then I passed that along to the next generation, helping them get better so that they could have good matches with the next crop and kind of teach everybody the right way instead of being a, instead of a selfish approach, which is I think kind of more how it was in the NXT <laughs> system. Cause everyone was looking out for themselves, not really for the group. Gotcha. Now, another question I have is you being on the road, how did you handle the food situation? Because when you're professional wrestlers, they always uh, watch what they eat. I've I've heard numerous stories about Brian Cage and he will not even pick up a slice of pizza. It's always, you know, vegetables, chicken, just, you know, stuff like that. How did you maintain uh, food regimens and eating properly, I guess you could say, so you weren't always at the fast food joints? That is very, very hard. I, I didn't diet real heavy early on, uh, but when I got serious about trying to get looked at, that's when I started kind of my diet. Um, uh-huh. For me, and that's another thing, man. You're It's 11 o'clock at night. You're in a weird town that has nothing open. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't pack food with you, you're. I mean, you're kind of at the mercy of whatever's there, and that's when you're getting your truck stops, your McDonald's. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, it, it's not impossible to eat healthy. It is harder. Um, but, you know, I would always allow myself a cheat night. So I remember one night we were out and I was in the middle of this really good diet and I'd really trimmed up. I started kind of getting some abs for the first time in my career. And yeah, uh-huh. only thing that's open is Pizza Hut. And I'm like, <sighs> and guys like, oh, <laughs> be your cheat night. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. So. It is what it is. You know, you just try to do the best you can. I think it's it's impossible. Like, I mean, you look at guys that are, you know, consistently like Brian Cage is a good example. Good example. He's always been very ripped up and stuff. Like mm-hmm. that guy's probably always got his protein, always got his healthy snacks and, and doing all that mm-hmm. stuff. But man, that's there's a lot of food prep you have to do with with that, which is also a very hard thing. Correct. 
Uh, yeah, I've heard a story about Brian where Brian was, uh, he was in another town and he was looking for a healthy place to eat, like uh, a meal prep place. We have them out here all over the place, but you go and they have already pre-prepped meals that, sure. and I'm not talking about fast food, just but like healthy, you know, well-balanced vegetable protein, just stuff like that. And he will hunt that place down and go there as well. So I've, I've always heard good things about like his, uh, intake of food. So, but I obviously eating fast food on the road and eating the things that you do does lead to certain, uh, situations where you do have to use a bathroom and you're in the middle of nowhere. How does that work out when you're on the road? Do you guys ever get upset with each other when you have to make frequent stops or like, I mean, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of uh, gas station bathrooms that weren't pleasant to the eyes. So well, how did you, how'd you guys do that? Well, even more so than, than, than that, some of the locker rooms we were in didn't have restrooms. So, Oh, how did you, how did you guys do that? I mean, you have to walk through the crowd. I mean, it's just one of those things like, it is what it is sometimes, and it's not a real cool feeling to walk through this crowd with your boots on, and you put a pair of shorts usually over your over your your tights. But you know, walking through and like, oh, I gotta go take a dump. I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, like, <laughs> right, you right, can't, yeah. you can't, <laughs> like, you can't understand that. I mean, I don't know. I used to have the real long hair, so I would always wet it down. There's not a sink back there. There's no water back there. Like, it's just. When you're on that independent level, you can't understand what that's like until you experience mm-hmm. it. But I mean, I don't know how many times we would be in these just crazy venues of like, what are we doing? I, I remember we had, we did one show in Iowa. The guy booking the show wasn't the smartest individual, and he booked this show in like this uh, banquet hall. Uh-huh. And when you think banquet hall, you kind of think of like the ECW venues. This well, this was not it. It was a very very low ceiling. And I guess this Uh guy didn't check on the ceiling height or they lied to him. I don't know which one we get there. The ceiling is about 13 feet tall. I can, we set the ring up. I can touch the ceiling standing in the middle of the ring without fully extending my arm. Oh boy. Yeah. And so not only that, it was like a banquet hall connected to a bowling alley. There was two doors to walk through for the entrance. So we had to get right by the door to be able to hear our music for our cue so we're standing there fully in our tights <laughs> in front of an entire bowling alley waiting to hear our music. <laughs> like, it's hard oh. to look cool like that, right? My opponent is right. 20 feet from me. I mean, what do you do? Like you can't – like we don't have a security staff. We have like two students who are – you know, playing, one's playing the music, one's standing there acting like he knows what he's doing. Like it's just uh-huh. – it, it's kind of just it is what it is most of the time. And I remember that particular show – we had to basically like, well, guys, we can't do anything big. You can't do anything more than like a, a, off the ropes besides a clothesline because you can't go in the air. You'll hit the ceiling. Uh-huh. Like we could basically we could do a snap suplex and you could do a body slam if you were careful and the guy's feet didn't hit the ceiling. But that was it. I mean, so Harley's not a big fan of fighting on the floor, but we kind of had to do that a little bit because we had like it had to be mat based. Now I go back to what I was saying before about building a foundation if you had no mat skills, what can you do in that match? Like, what can you do? We had to wrestle 25 minutes in the main event, me and this other guy. So you had to be able to work. And mm-hmm. and that's the stuff that people don't sometimes understand. The situations that you get in in wrestling is just like, what in the hell are we doing? But it, it is what it is. 
high flying that night was coming off the bottom rope, huh? Dude, uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> like we have, we had a high flyer on the card, and I think he was upset. But it's like, sorry, man. Like you can probably do a standing moonsault off the mat, but that's about all you're going to be able to do tonight. Did anybody joke around about grabbing bowling shoes for their gear or anything like that? No, I, I don't think so. I think we were all so completely. Because, like, the, the promoter of the show was like, well, I thought the ring would fit. And I'm like, are you stupid? Like, how do you not? Do not? <laughs> and then he offered, he had a welder friend he's, who had offered to cut the ring legs off to just pull the ring down about two feet and then put them back on. And I'm like, dude, we got, like, six-hour drive after the show. Like, are you insane? Like, that's your offer? Like, it, it's it's crazy the things that you you run into in wrestling and the type of people that you meet. It's it's always it's always interesting. So going back out on the road, what other things have you experienced on the road where you're just like, well, I need to remember this because maybe one day I'll have a podcast or one day I'll be telling my story. Uh, what are some other road stories that you have? Oh, man, so many. I remember going to uh, we were at, booked as extras for WWE and we had, we were booked in Des Moines, Iowa, and we hit this massive snowstorm on the way there. I mean, I'm talking just couldn't see your hand in front of your face type of snowstorm. Mm-hmm. So we're driving to this hotel that we had already booked, but it's like you can't see your hand in front of your face type of snow. It was pretty scary. We finally got to the hotel at like five in the morning and they had just set out the continental breakfast. And uh-huh. we literally there was four of us. We literally ate every bit of food they had set out like everything oh, like they had. Yeah, they had like donuts and eggs and bacon and like we ate everything they had because we were starving because we didn't couldn't really stop to eat because we were not sure if we were going to get back on the on the road because it was snowing so bad. So, you know, we get to the hotel. It's five in the morning. We got a couple hours of sleep headed to the venue. And if anyone's ever been booked as an extra, it's a super long day because it was Monday Night Raw. And I mean, geez, you're there at 11 o'clock and you're there until the show ends at 10, 1030. And then we had to drive to the next town. Luckily, the snow had kind of subsided by that point. But it was just it's just those long days that people don't always understand. And at the time, I was waiting tables. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I would ask off to go do this extra work, you know, which are very long days, like I said, they would want me to come in and work double shifts because, oh, we let you off to go do that. So you had you had vacation. I'm like, uh, that's not a vacation. I was working. But then it's at the other end of that coin. It's like I did need the money, so it's such. It was such an interesting life to live at that time. Oh, uh, so how was it driving through? Because wrestlers experience so many different elements: the rain, the sleet, the snow, the black ice. Hopefully, no black ice, but it is there. Obviously, uh, was there any situations or scary situations that you encountered? Uh, nothing. Nothing super scary like that. I, I just remember. So many times driving at four, five, six o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. back from some wild town and and stuff like that. And just you being so tired that you're just hoping that you can stay awake because it's kind of a respect thing. Uh, you know, the driver can't sleep, so no one else sleeps. Some people don't really follow right. that. I've always tried to follow that. But there's times you just pass out. I mean, it's just you're that tired. And, and then knowing you have to go to work the next day or whatever it is the next day. Like there's always stuff like that on the road, just traveling and, you know, hoping Mm -hmm. you, I mean, number one, I mean, we wrestled in a lot of podunk towns in Missouri. 
So you get there, you need gas. So you got to hope, ooh, we got to be smart enough to fill up before the show because we may not have an open gas station afterwards. Oh, that's right. I mean, so there was a lot of little things that you kind of start to understand and experience. And then also, too, I traveled a lot with uh, Dan Geyer, who's been on my podcast a few times. He was Mm -hmm. our ring announcer, and he also pulled our ring. And if that ring was not packed packed in correctly on the trailer, it would sway in the while you're driving. So if it didn't get packed exactly right, we were only driving like 50 miles an hour down the highway. So, I mean, lots of just interesting things like that where like you're just like, oh, my God, we're never going to get home. I mean, it's just it was all yeah. it, was, it was just the life that we let we lived, you know, being wrestlers and stuff. So you get to Florida, you get to FCW. Now you're under the WWE banner right now. What's what's it like? What's out, what's going on through your head? Uh, I, obviously, you have always been a respectful person, so obviously you were paying your respects, or you were. I mean, you were uh, respectful to everyone. What was that like? Walking through those doors, and who were some of the people that took you under your wing or under their wing? I apologize. Oh man, so many people. There, I mean. F- the the thing that I so so I I got there it was still FCW we were still doing FCW shows but NXT the TV show had started but it hadn't fully mm-hmm. transitioned into be calling NXT yet it kind of got to that point as I went and I was still there in Tampa when it was you know at the FCW building before they moved to the Performance Center and stuff like that um, what got me about the WWE system that I had not experienced because I came from WLW was how when I was in WLW, everybody helped me out. Everybody, mm-hmm. all the veterans would watch my match and give me advice or or whatever. Wasn't really like that in NXT where you had a few close people, but most everybody was uh, was like an acquaintance almost. Um, mm-hmm. But I did have mm-hmm. a lot of good friends. Um, Xavier Woods became a really good friend of mine. We bonded over. I had a... Uh, a t-shirt that he found funny. And I remember he, he stopped me the next day and he's like, you have fantastic taste in t-shirts. I was like, well, thank you. And, um, I made a little, a little promo video of a character I was trying to do when I was in NXT and he helped me edit that and put it all together and stuff and had a lot of really Mm -hmm. good ideas, just a super creative guy. And, um, and like, like I said, there was a ton of guys that were just super, super helpful. Um, but again, it was a very, cutthroat world because when you showed up they it wasn't like oh hey great i'm glad you're here it was oh great there's another guy that can take my spot so it was not met with a lot of like warm reception if that me if that makes sense that makes complete sense uh do you remember what the shirt was can you describe it i do it was it said i drive 88 miles per hour just in case and it was in the back to the future font that is fantastic yeah and so he he definitely <laughs> He uh, he popped for that one. Then I had another show that it said uh, Glass Joe's Boxing School, take a punch like a champ. <laughs> <laughs> so you know he's a big video gamer, obviously. So he appreciated that one. Oh, that is great. <laughs> um, so you have long days in training too. You sure. have you have promo class. You have uh, days in the ring where you're going from what about eight to five, seven to five. So. When I first got there, the thing, the, the weird thing about being a contracted guy was they basically just told you what you were going to do. 
mm-hmm. and there was no like, and then that's with the whole issue. I know that it's come up recently with like the third party streaming stuff where right. they're not your, your independent contractors, but they treat you like employees, but they don't give you benefits of an employee. So mm-hmm. like, how can you tell us what to do all the time? I don't know. So it, it is what it is. But anyway, so Monday was usually training. So that was like a three hour training class. And then we would do, we would tan and we'd go work out mm-hmm. afterwards, it, depending on the, the training day. Like, so, so either trained like eight to 11, 12 to three or three to six. And they kind of alternated those, your, your class. And they just basically told you which class you were going to be in. You didn't have a choice, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, I heard the previous regime was kind of like, there's two training classes come to come to either one or both or whatever. And you know, because a lot of guys had kids and things they had to do, so it's like your whole schedule was kind of based on whatever they felt like, which, yeah, again, it is what it is. But, but anyway, so that was kind of your day Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, you had a promo class and probably training. Thursday, we had a training day, and then we did the the FCW Tampa show there in town or an mm-hmm. NXT taping, depending on the week. And if it wasn't NXT taping week, we would actually on Tuesday, they would make us drive to Orlando two hours away, set up the ring, and then we drove back. So that was always fun. <laughs> Friday, was, yeah, Friday was a show. Saturday was a show. And Sunday we usually had off. But sometimes we also had shows on Sunday. So that was our that was our schedule. It was it doesn't sound like a lot, but you were constantly coming or going. And I remember when I got released we had a three show weekend lined up a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all of a sudden my Friday is completely full or completely free as is my Saturday and Sunday. I was so busy when I was there. I didn't really know what to do with myself. It's kind of like, I'm sure a lot of people experience this with quarantine. You're so used to going to work every day when you don't do that. You don't really know what to do with yourself. You know, you're just like, <laughs> right. you know, right. it's just, a, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. So when you were in FCW, did were they strict about diets? Were they were they on you about every little thing like that? Like, because we all have heard the stories about WWE and how strict it is, and you know, to you have to do everything to a precise thing. Were they like that when you were there at that time? Oh yeah, like they they did a, a weekly weigh in. It was every Monday. Um, they did updated pictures like once a month. We had to come in and get your gear on, and they just take pictures of us in the office and stuff like that. So there was there was always consistent like they're watching you type of stuff Mm -hmm. now was there also any time where there was word that you might be getting called up to raw or smackdown or anything like that outside of being a uh enhancement talent was there any talk of you going up and maybe having a story for you already no that that was what was so frustrating about the business is or that that company, they wanted you to have a pitch. Your pitch was your character. And what would happen is your contract states, any idea that you present is intellectual property of the WWE. Mm-hmm. So I saw guys pitch ideas that they would give to other people. Oh, yeah. Is there one that comes, if you can talk about it, is there one that comes to mind? Absolutely. Uh, Brodus Clay pitched the Hall of Pain. And as we all know, that went to Mark Henry. Gotcha. And, and it is what it is. So you have to pitch stuff because if you don't, 
they're not going to do anything with you. I, I had started a, a pitch and a character that I was trying to develop. That's the video I was talking about. And it just, mm-hmm. I don't think they really got it, but it could have worked had, had it been given a chance. And, and, you know, it just around the time that they said, okay, you need to do something else. I was like, okay, I was trying to find my next thing. Then I got released. So I never really got to that point of getting to really show what I could do. It just, mm-hmm. it, it was what it was, you know, like you're just hoping to kind of catch a break. I was only there like 11 months, so it wasn't a real long run. And I know like my buddy Simon Gotch, he was there, I think, 14 months before he did a single match. So oh, okay. The process is very, very long term sometimes. So when you were there, uh, and uh, let's refresh everybody's memory. What was your name when you were in NXT? Brandon Traven. And how did you come up with that name? Uh, Craven the Hunter was a Spider-Man villain. I thought mm-hmm. that was a cool name. And so I kind of just changed it to Traven. And uh, basically, I came up with a list of first names that I that, that weren't being used at the time. And uh, basically, what they, what they told us to do my very first day, pitch 10 names to the company. I pitched 10 names. All of them rejected. And I was like, whew, that sucks. And so like pitch 10 more and it's just like 10. I mean, I spent hours coming up with a name that I want to keep, you know? Uh And so I talked to the office guy and he was like, well, pitch 10 more, but pitch the originals too. Brandon Traven was on my original list and, um, they, uh, they ended up going with that. They just called me like you're officially Brandon Traven. I was like, okay. And that was it. So was there any names that they came back to you with that were horrible because we've all heard those stories. I think there was one that they gave Daniel Bryan. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, was there any names that they came back to you with that was absolutely horrendous? No, they didn't. Um, a few of the guys had that where they they would they would pitch like like there was a guy. Uh, I don't know if you have you heard of Madman Fulton from uh, from Impact. Yeah, he was a Sawyer Fulton when I was there in NXT. He was part of uh, Sanity for a little bit. Yep. Well, he pitched a bunch of different names and they came back with, we like the name Sawyer, come up with something there. And so that's when he landed on Sawyer Fulton. So I don't know, like Angelo Dawkins wanted to be D'Angelo Dawkins, but at the time, mm-hmm. um, Elijah Burke was D'Angelo De Niro on TNA. So they said, well, how about Angelo Dawkins? And so that's how that name happened. Um, okay. There was a bunch of different ones. So it, it always kind of changed. You know, like who got what name and like, I think the office picked Mojo Raleigh. I think they wanted that one. Um, Mm -hmm. Not sure why, but they did. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Some of the names they just, they kind of, they, they kind of pushed for some, they just went with, um, I think Tennille pitched, pitched Emma and they Uh went with that. I don't know. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why they were like, Oh, perfect. We love it. Um, it just kind of happens. Uh, Jason Jordan, I know he wanted his original name to be Tyrell Upton, and they didn't like that, and so they landed on Jason Jordan. So I don't know why. I know they. One of the things they do is they put it through legal and see if there's any type of potential lawsuit, you know? Because um, mm-hmm. the Viking Raiders they were called War Machine. Well, anyone who's a mm-hmm. comic book fan knows that War Machine's a Marvel Comics character, so that's probably why that changed. And then they were like, yep. um, they were what were they the the war Raiders, I think. And then the Viking experience, now the Viking Raiders. So, it, you know, it, it, <laughs> yeah. it kind of always changes. You never know. <laughs> so 
who were some of your dearest friends in NXT uh, in the 11 months that you were there? Like, who is there anybody that you still keep in contact with? I, I try to. Um, I know they're all busy. So it's one of those things you kind of do lose touch with people at times. Um, Xavier Woods, mm-hmm. I mentioned him before. He was a really good friend of mine. Eric Rowan, he's actually been on Breaker and Bane's Power Hour in the past. He's a really good friend of mine. Jason mm-hmm. Ayers, who's a WWE referee, good friend. Uh, Ryan Tran, another WWE referee. He's a California guy, too. Um, yep, Northern California guy. Yeah, he uh, he's a, he was a he. I've known him since WLW. He's a huge. I'm a big big fan of his him, and you know we're great friends. He's been on my show as well. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was there. The guy named Dante Dash who never got called up. I was I was really good friends with him. Um, there's a guy named Bronson that was there. Great dude. He lives in Las Vegas nowadays. Um, I was always always buddies with him. Uh, we just lost. As we record this, uh, Luke Harper, Brody Lee, mm-hmm. I was buddies with him. Uh, Aiden English, I was good friends with him. Uh, I mean, I mean, most everybody I got along with. You know, Cassius Ono, I became really good friends with him while I was there. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, just a, just a ton of really really good people. It, but it was just such a, as such a unique environment. Like I said, it wasn't like you walk in and everybody's like, oh hey, glad you're here. Um, you know, it was just a. It was a lot more cutthroat. And, and I think it was a lot of people kept their friends close. And I became really good friends with uh, Bray Wyatt, actually. Mm-hmm. And and I was I was I, I was friends with Bo Dallas, but not as not as close as I was with Bray. Bray was a was a really good guy. But um, but again, a lot of these people, Miro, Rusev, I was I was buddies with him. Scott Dawson, who's Dax Harwood now. I was good friends with him. There's a guy named Knuckles Madsen, who was super awesome, hilarious dude. Loved that. Loved that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy named Sam Udell who uh, wrestles as Dak Draper in ROH now. Uh-huh. Um, a ton of dudes. I don't want to leave anyone out because there's so many of them. But I was always I was always pretty cool with most everybody. Like there wasn't anyone there that I was just like, I, I hate that guy. Most everybody was pretty cool. <laughs> um, Briley Pierce, who's Dolph Ziggler's brother. He, he was mm-hmm. a good guy. He was there. I mean, there a lot of people. What was the living situation like? I had, were you living close to... The training area or yeah, I got an apartment about five miles away so that I didn't have to travel too far. Right. And there were probably nights where you got home and you were just sitting in your car. Like, I don't want to get out of my car. (laughs) I'm exhausted all the time. Yeah. Just hitting that training all the time. Oh man. I mean, and they would do things like we would do NXT TV, which Uh was like four, four episodes on a Thursday. And we have to go disassemble the ring. Triple H would take time to talk to us. So we disassemble the ring, get it put in a trailer. We're leaving there two o'clock in the morning, if we're lucky. Getting mm-hmm. home at four, but right before we leave, the co- our head coach would be like, "Oh, by the way, um, training tomorrow at eight a.m." Oh man. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, and then we get there and like, guys, I know you're all tired. We're not going to do much today. And I'm like, then why are we here? You know, it was always things like that <laughs> that I, I just it really made me fall out of love with wrestling while I was there. To be totally honest with you. And that's uh-huh. when I started to realize, like, I want to get out of here. Like, I knew right away this wasn't for me. I wasn't a fan of how the system operated. And that's mm-hmm. when I really knew I wanted to get to Japan again. Now, when – so you went to Japan previous before the World Tag League that you went to in 2016, I believe it was, right? Correct, yes. Now, what was your experience like that before you went to New Japan the second time? What was your experience that first time? Because traveling overseas, I personally over here, I've never done that. So what was the learning curve for you to go over to Japan that first time? 
So I went the first time in 2011. I think I was like 25. I was vastly unprepared to be wrestling in Japan at the time because I was still Mm -hmm. so green. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely loved it while I was there. Um, We actually, I I don't know if anyone knows this. This is kind of a a story a lot of people don't, don't know. But me and Trevor Murdoch and Bobby Fish were the Americans on that tour. And we actually landed at the exact moment that big tsunami hit in Japan in 2011. That's when you guys landed? That's when we landed, yeah. And so... Oh, no. Yeah. So it was... We just got, you know, through a 12-plus hour flight, however long it was. We, well, I say that we landed just after. But we felt like some aftershocks where the plane started rocking back and forth and kind of freaky. We're like, oh, geez. And so, right. you know, I mean, I'm sure you've flown before. So you know how, like, that's the standard issue. The plane lands it's like all right you know everybody exit you know and everyone stands up but you can't move because you have to single file get out of the plane yep so you're standing in place for like 20 minutes and so everyone's standing Mm -hmm. up and they finally tell us well you can go and sit back down and they ended up keeping us in the airplane for an additional like seven hours just waiting because seven hours seven hours yeah because, oh boy. yeah, and they ended up giving us little snacks and stuff. And I remember looking at Trevor. He was one row ahead of me. Bobby was on the other side of the plane. And Trevor's like, we may be on here a while. And I'm like, what is going on? Because I, I don't have a smartphone at this time. I have no idea. Uh-huh. And uh, we start to realize there was a tsunami. And we're like, oh, geez, like, that's crazy. We finally get off the plane. We get through customs, that whole deal. Get our luggage. The Noah, Pro Wrestling Noah's bus is there waiting on us. And he tells us we have to take the, the back road because all the major highways are down. So it takes us five hours at this point to get to the hotel. Mm-hmm. We get to the hotel, which is a nicer hotel in Tokyo. And there's people sleeping all over the floor because there was no rooms available. And I'm like, oh, no. Well, it turns out they saved our rooms because they knew that we were coming. And uh-huh. so the guy, what, what had happened is... Um, Shane Thorne and Mikey Nichols, who uh, were TM61 or TMDK, um, yeah, they had just gotten there. And the dojo, they were staying at the dojo, and it flooded. So what the guy was trying to tell us was, we have three rooms, but they took one, so we only have two. And finally, uh-huh. when we figured it out, Trevor's like, that's fine. Me and Breaker will room together. <laughs> like, we're good. Just <laughs> let us go sleep. And and so we got up to the room, and it was two beds, so it was no big deal. Um at this point, I hadn't had any communication to my parents. My mom had been up for like 30 hours worried sick because I guess they saw on the news a airport completely washed away by the tsunami. Uh-huh. Yep. So I, I, I had downloaded Skype on my laptop and was able to call them finally, which I think really gave them a sigh of relief because they had no idea. They had not heard if I was even dead. So definitely a wild time. And... We got to the hotel. We had like two hours to sleep before we had to get picked up to go back on the road. And that's when I had my very first match in Japan. And it was, I was dog tired. I mean, it was just, it was, it was such a weird experience going through all that. It's like, I didn't have time to be nervous, you know? Mm-hmm. So the adrenaline must have, is what pushed you through that match, right? Oh, for sure. It was just, it was one of those things Like we were actually in the main event that night because they were gearing up to have Trevor wrestle. Uh, uh, Segura for the GHC title um, down the road at the end of the tour, like a big title match. Because in Japan, they don't do title matches every show like we do here in the States. 
It's like, right. you know, I mean, you know, you're a Japanese wrestling fan. It's like once a month, basically, at the most, right? Or, correct. And so Segura was gearing up for a big title match with Trevor. So we're, we're wrestling. It was me, Trevor, and Bobby Fish against Segura, Taniguchi, and Morishima, which you probably remember Morishima from Ring of Honor. Yep, sure do. Yeah. So I'm in there with Morishima, and he is, like, wanting me to suplex him and body slam him and spine buster. And I'm, I'm, I'm naming every big move I have. He's like, okay, more. And I'm like, uh, double underhook suplex? Okay, more. Spine buster? Power slam? He's like, okay, more. And he just kept, like, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, so it was just one of those things, but the psychology over there is so much different than in the States. These guys, I think their psychology from what I learned was they want to take everything you have. So then kick out of it and still beat you. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the States. It's like, if it was a job guy against triple H, triple H ain't taking, you know, all these big moves, right? He's taking one or two, but different, (laughs) different mindset. So we actually ended up winning a a handful of six man tags leading up to (laughs) Trevor's big title match. And then after that, I got pinned every match. (laughs) So the eating situation over there, how different, obviously the language barrier and everything, but what else was different about eating over in Japan other than here in the States? A lot of pictures over there. So you kind of got a picture of what you were eating, you know, Uh huh. a lot of like the, we go to these truck stops and they would actually have like, almost a vending machine you put in your money and you hit a button for the the plate you want and that would print out a ticket and you go take them the ticket and then they would make your food so i'm kind of a picky eater by nature so i would always kind of find something that i liked and kind of stick with it to a degree unless i was on like a sponsored dinner or something where they were going to pay for it but yeah i was always kind of just i want to make sure i got good food i guess gotcha and now they would bus you everywhere over there, right? Yes. Okay. And that was the same for New Japan when you came back in 2016, right? Absolutely. Yeah. They bust you everywhere. Or they would put you in a taxi cab if they needed to. Gotcha. So the first time you were there, you faced Marafuji. I or did. You were in a, yeah, yeah, you were did. in a match with Marafuji. Yeah. I wrestled first, man, my first tour, like I said, Morishima, Segura, Marafuji, Kenta. Um, uh huh. Jeez, uh, Kinsuke Sasaki, I wrestled him, Nakajima, um, Saito, Takuma, uh, Takuma Sano, Yoshihiro Takayama, Jun Nakayama. I mean, I mean, I wrestled everybody they had. Such a crazy experience. I was going to say, especially uh, for, like like you said, how green you were at the time. Right, yeah, absolutely. It, it must. It just must have been a, a crazy situation. Like, I'm in the ring with Marafuji. I... I I don't know, just personally over here, I would be in sh- like awe or in shock. <laughs> to this day, him and Tanahashi are the two best guys I've ever been in the ring with. And uh, explain that. Like, what do you mean? Just so unbelievably good. I've always felt like with most guys, I'm like, I can hang with this guy. You know, like, he's good, but I can hang with him. Those guys, mm-hmm. I was like, they're on another level. Like, they are so good. And Tanahashi, I feel like people appreciate that. I don't think people appreciate that about Marafuji, how good he actually is. And just how smooth they are in the ring. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Because I remember the first time you were ever on our show, you said that Tana was one of the smoothest wrestlers you've ever been in the ring with. And you even made that same comment, I believe, that he was that guy that um, you locked up with. And you're like, I don't know if I can hang with this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? he, he just was so good. And I remember like the whole time with Tanahashi when we were putting the match together, he's just doing his hair. <laughs> you know, not even really paying attention. Uh-huh. And we get out there and he's like 
calling audibles on the fly that totally made sense. Like he's that good. And I'm like, man, this guy is on another level. Like he is so good. I mean, I know a lot of people praise Okada. I know you're a big Okada guy, but I mean, yeah, for my money. I don't know if there's anyone better than Tanahashi. Granted, I didn't wrestle Okada when I was there, but Tanahashi was unbelievable. Uh, any fun road stories over there, like being on the bus or in the taxi or anything like that? Yeah. Uh, here's one funny story. When I was in Japan, it was my second tour. Uh, a guy named Yoshinari Ogawa. He uh, he mm-hmm. wrestles for Pro Wrestling Noah, veteran, been around since like I think he debuted in like '85, which is the year I was, I was born, which is crazy. We were on. We were. I was. I was sitting on the bus, and I think one other person was on the bus, and. Ogawa took a liking to me. He would always talk to me. Super great guy. And just tell me stories and ask me about, you know, wrestling and Harley and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just sitting on the bus playing on my phone or whatever. And he calls this young boy up. And, of course, they're speaking Japanese. And they're talking. And all of a sudden, I hear him slap him across the face. And like I'm talking. He slapped the piss out of him. I was like. Like like Bill Bennis did to you? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. It, it was a little harder than the than the Bill Venus slap. But anyway, he just he's, <laughs> he slaps this young boy across the face, and I uh-huh. see this young boy's face, and he's about to cry. Not because it hurt, but because I think he messed up, right? Mm-hmm. And so he gets off the bus because the young boys are kind of responsible for putting the bags up and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I'm not going to say anything. And Ogawa yell, yells my name out. So I turn around and he looks at me and he goes, uh, young boy, stupid. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, I kind of got that. You slapped the piss out of him. And um, what I what I actually had heard what had happened is that young boy was telling the other young boys that he was smartening them up. And that's something you don't do over there until they feel you're ready. And And that's what Ogawa was basically putting him in check. Gotcha. Okay. Which is totally different than how things would be in the States. Right, right, right. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. I was just like, I don't understand why he would just slap him, but now that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Um, so did you have any tough times or is there ever any time where you had a moment where you were in the ring and something popped you in front of a live crowd? Oh, for sure. What are some stories that you have about that? There's all, I mean, pop me in front of a live crowd all the time. Like that to me is, that's part of the, the entertaining aspect of pro wrestling is live entertainment. I remember, uh, there's a guy named uh, Gino who wrestles for MLW and, uh, reality Mm -hmm. wrestling in Houston. I was wrestling him Mm -hmm. in a tag match in Tulsa one time here. And, uh, I popped him actually. He just, he, he busted up laughing so hard. He had to hide his face. And we have this referee here in Oklahoma, um, and uh, I don't want to make fun of him too much, but he's you know he he's not all there. Let's just say that. Okay. And so I get in the ring, and he's doing like the old school like check your boots, check your knee pads, check your tights. Uh huh. And I'm talking crap to those guys like, you know, I want to teach you a lesson, blah blah blah, my my old school wrestler stuff. And the uh-huh. referee when he when he checks my tights. He ran ran his hand like across my balls, and I stop and I was like, "You just touched my balls." 
And Gino started laughing and he couldn't stop. And there was a guy that was at every show and he started laughing because it wasn't like I, I was trying to be funny. It just caught me so off guard. I, was, I just looked at him and was like, you just touched my balls. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so that, that's, that's, that's a funny story. I've done that. There's a couple of referees I'll pull ribs on where I'm in a hold and they're checking on me. And this one uh-huh. referee named uh, Brandon Schmidt, who I want to have on the show down the road, um, he got real close and I flicked his his nuts. <laughs> but he got close and he was like, ah, "Stop it!" <laughs> he's trying to he's trying to like maintain his composure. Which funny story about that guy? One time we were in a tag match and he kept walking by the corner and he was saying something to me, but I couldn't understand him. And I'm like, "I, I don't, uh-huh. don't know what you're saying." And he'd kind of circle, come back around, he'd say something I'm like, "I can't understand you." And finally, he just backed up and he goes. I ripped my pants. How bad is it? <laughs> and he had like black underwear on. So I was like, it's not bad. You're good. He's like, oh my God. So he started like untucking his shirt and stuff because he ripped his pants in the match. <laughs> so this, I mean, like that's to me that that's the fun part about wrestling. When, when things are actually funny, like you have to kind of uh-huh. take a second and laugh about it. Right. Because it's never going to be perfect. It's like doing a podcast, right? It's right, never right, going to be right. perfect. We want it to be perfect, but that's just not realistic. Right. I just lost my train. I thought of my next question I had for you that I even have written down in front of me. It happens, dude. It exactly. Just, it but that's happen. that's part of it being real life. People are getting to experience it. Was there ever a promo where you you two were in the ring and this guy's cutting a promo on you and he said something off the cuff and you had to like turn your head, cover your put the hair in your face or to stop from laughing? So that would be more me that made another guy laugh. A uh, good friend of mine, Jack Gamble, will probably have some funny moments on this. There was uh-huh. a wrestler that we knew that used to cut some of the worst promos ever. And he would put <laughs> uh-huh. them on YouTube. And so we would set up late at night just watching these promos over and over again, just laughing our asses off. <laughs> because he would have a few random lines. Well, there's a couple of guys. One of the guys used to do a line... He did this line in this promo. It was real, like, he was trying to sound tough, but he was like, you are a good athlete. I will give you that. And that was a line he would say a lot in his promos. So I Uh remember I would always do something like that to a guy to try to get him to pop. Like, throw out a little one-liner from one of those promos that no one in the live crowd is going to understand. Uh-huh. But just just to make him pop, and I so I would always I would always try to do that anytime I would be able to do a promo and just kind of see them kind of give me that look and try to bite their lip like they're not trying to laugh or something. <laughs> Breaker, thank you for having me on and letting me interview you. I think getting a look behind the curtain is a lot of fun. I, there was a couple other questions I had. Um, any times like you've ever been uh, yelled at by a promoter or anything like that? I've always been interested in stuff like that we didn't get into it but thank you for having me on and thank you for letting me interview you again well i haven't been yelled at by a promoter but if i were i would not be like the type kind of just take it i'm gonna yell back so um, <laughs> but yeah, at the end of the day i've also always treated people with respect and i didn't feel like i've ever given them a reason to yell at me i mean i've had some promoters yep. do some shady things and i always try to call them on it mm-hmm. and you know that's that's a whole nother story <laughs> well, I appreciate you letting me interview you, man. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a nice change of pace, man. So, uh, but I don't think that this gets you off the hook. You're going to be on this show down the road where I interview you. Well, I, 
I appreciate that. Absolutely. I, I want to, I, I do want to be on. I always look forward to talking to you. It's always a fun time. You know, it's a, the Harley stories is still one of those shows that everybody still talks about to this day. The, the amount of Harley stories that you had and just bringing that to the show is so much fun. And yeah. I, like Scott and I were just like kids around a campfire, just listening to you tell these stories. And you know what? It was funny too, because we got off the line that night. And you're like, I still thought of like two or three more stories I could have told. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing is I was around the guy for so, so long. And, and honestly, he was such an intimidating person. It was kind of hard to, to just sit there and talk with him. But once I got to that point where I felt comfortable, he was such a great guy and so giving with his time. Like he would, he'd be heading out the door and this is after his wife died. It'd be like seven, seven thirty. We're training. All right, guys, I'm taking off. Hey, Harley, you mind watching this guy work real quick? Yeah, sure. And he just sat down and smoke about three cigarettes and watch the match. <laughs> like, that's how he was. Like, he didn't, he never, he never, like, wasn't giving. And that, and that's, and I think a lot of why I try to be that way in wrestling, like, I try to help out anyone I can. I don't try to be overbearing about it. I don't try to, to like, you know, get in someone's face. This is what you need to do. But if they want to talk to me, I'll give them advice. And I've even told guys, you know, who have, you know, had a WWE tryout and like, what can I expect? And I'm like, I'll be honest, man. I don't know. I haven't been up there in so long. It's different now, but here's what I went through. You know, here's what it was mm -hmm. for me. So if I can help people, I will. And, and a lot of that comes from how it was with Harley, because a lot of the guys he had helped me because he probably told them to. And so mm -hmm. they told me to help this new guy. So I did. And I told him you help these guys. And so he did. And, and, you know, I think when you do that, we all get better and, you know, no one's worried about a spot. No one's worried about this or that. They're just worried about making our show the best it can be. Yeah. Well, thank you, Breaker. And again, hearing these stories, you know, makes us appreciate you even more and the character that you have developed and uh, the personality that you have. We just appreciate the hell out of you. And we've always thanked you for what you've done for Scott and I. You, you know, know you it, were, it, you were, it goes both ways, you know, because I uh, when I reached out to you guys just kind of randomly – um, I don't know. I certainly didn't think this, and I'm sure you didn't either, that we would develop this bond where, you know, we'd be on each other's shows numerous times and talk all the time and become friends and things like that. And more than just, you know, online acquaintances, I guess, but actual friends. You don't assume that, but I think it's really cool right. that, that we've been able to develop that relationship over these few years just from a simple, I heard your show. I liked what I heard because I'll be honest. When I when I heard a wrestling figure podcast, I thought, "Oh, this is gonna suck." <laughs> but, <laughs> but I loved how you guys did it. I'm like, man, these guys—they're not weirdos. They're just like me. They're just cool guys <laughs> that like wrestling figures. Okay, I'm not a I'm not a freak. Like this is this is okay. And I feel like you guys have opened the doors to this entire community of people to where it's not right. weird to post a new figure on Twitter. It's not weird to to admit that I like collecting it's, it's fun mm -hmm. and it's cool. And you guys kick that off. And I, I'm super, I'm super thankful that we're, we've all got to a chance to know each other. Um, I mean, I know yep. I, I talked to Bane about this and I know we're, we're trying to wrap up and we're kind of going over on time and stuff, but you know, Bane has had some, some family issues this past year with his mom being sick and getting COVID and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I remember he posted something on Facebook about it on his personal account. And almost every comment was a fig life person, Barry Frost, Jeff Toon, Scott Toon, you know, Eric Brown, Dobro, yeah. it, you know, it's yep. like, you know, like I, I always told him, I was like, you know, I always kind of tell myself like podcasting is not that important, but it is because look at these relationships we've created. 
Like yep. that's a cool thing. And you know, I think it's, it's so cool that like, obviously there's negativity and tox- toxic personalities online, but there's also a lot of positive things. So, you know, I, right. I, I'm very, I'm very thankful for all those relationships we've been able to, to build from just something so simple as doing a podcast. Right. And if you and Bane were ever to stop your show or Scott and I were ever to stop our show, it's not like our communication would stop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, we've all developed this friendship. You know, we text often. We uh, we're on each other's shows and just stuff like that. And you know that this friendship would even go beyond the podcast. Absolutely. The podcast was just the catalyst to how we actually met each other. Yep. And exactly. And that's, what's been so cool about it. I mean, I, I still look at some of the episodes I've had of my podcast and I think it's really cool to interview someone who I didn't even know when I started this show, but then you just start to hear their story and like, wow, that's a, that's a really good guy Mm -hmm. or I really connect with him or whatever. And I think that that's a cool thing. Yeah. Breaker. Thank you again. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. It was, I interviewed you about, well, I'd say almost five, four and a half years ago. I know, right? I know. We've kind of come full circle. Exactly. It's kind of fun to do this for your show too. And I, I wanted to turn the tables on you and get those fun stories out there. Yeah, man, it was a lot of fun. And like I said, I always look forward to any time we can have a chance to chat and, you know, mix it up about whatever we're talking about. It's always a lot of fun. Yep. All right, Breaker, thank you very much. And I hope everybody enjoyed this. Breaker, you go and enjoy your Sunday and your time off from work and, Eat lots of food, man. Just down a bunch of chicken wings and have some pizza, dude. May just do just that. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, that pretty well wraps up episode nine here on You Know It's Fake, right? The ongoing battle with the dirtiest four-letter word. And professional wrestling, and like I said, I always I kind of turned the uh, I turned the turntables on you already. One episode in, and or not, I mean, whatever nine episodes in, you know what I'm saying? I'm tired. Okay, I just got off night shift, I'm trying to make this happen. I'm exhausted. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, that's why I don't like to re-record stuff. If you know, if I start fumbling my words, I just try to make it work because that's. It's the realist. That's a real part of podcasting, right? It's it's real. It's in your face. Sometimes mess ups happen. But I always say, like in wrestling, and I always tell, I always told people that I trained this too. A little inside knowledge for you. I always told people if you mess up, if you trip going to the ring, you meant to do that. Let don't don't ever let anyone determine for you what was real or what was an accident. So own own what happens, and I think that makes stuff more real. If you're a heel, you tripped, and you can get pissed that they make fun of you. If you're a baby face, you know, maybe you're injured, you know, who knows? So make a, make a reason for everything. But a big thank you to Jeff for coming on the show. Like I said, he kind of turned the turntables on me, but I said, you know, man, if, if we're going to do this, that's cool. But I definitely want to have you back on for an individual episode. So it won't be this coming week, but here before too long, Jeff will be returning to the show. However, this next week, my guest is the fighting Filipino warrior himself. He's a former WLW heavyweight champion. I believe he was the NWA Missouri champion as well. Good friend of mine, Elvis Aliaga. Uh, We tell stories throughout the show. um, And honestly, I I will say this right now. Elvis is a huge uh, influence for me to do this podcast this way. 
And the reason I say that is this, because me and Elvis shared a lot of stories in our time, you know, getting in the business and, and all that stuff. We shared stories of, of dealing with people saying weird things, asking weird questions. And he was like the first guy I was like, so, you know, he would, he would be like, oh yeah, did you wrestle in high school? And he, I remember he brought that up. I'm like, oh my God, I get that question too. And then we start comparing. It's like, wow, I get the same questions. Like, it's like you start realizing like, oh, I'm not crazy. Everyone else is nuts. <laughs> so Elvis was, um, he was a huge, uh, I don't even think I've told him that yet. So if he listens to this, he'll hear that. But he was a huge influence, <clears throat> excuse me, on me doing this type of show and us diving into this type of stuff because I thought, man, there's really a lot there. There's a lot to dissect. There's a lot to talk about. So I'm really excited to get into my conversation. That'll be next week with the fighting Filipino warrior himself, Elvis Aliaga. Um, he's a great guy to talk to. Huge fan of the business, just like me. Him and his brother used to record so much VHS. I mean, like, they were guys, and I'm talking in 2011, they knew the one store in town that sold blank VHS tapes because they still taped raw. That's awesome. You know, they don't do it now, but I mean, for a while there, they taped it each and every week, and I thought that that was, I thought that was really, really cool. A lot of dedication, so I dig that. Um, before we wrap up, <clears throat> uh, give a follow to to Fully Posable. Give Jeff a follow there and check out the Fully Posable Wrestling Figure Podcast. I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's a great show, and uh, they're two entertaining guys. They're two Jeff and Scott both. Scott will be coming up on future episode as well. Spoiler. Um, you know, they're guys that I, I met through podcasting. I kind of reached out kind of blindly and they were like super receptive and yeah, let's do a podcast. That'd be great. And then I remember talking to them and thinking like, oh, this is awesome. Maybe I'll have them on my show. And then they were super accommodating and it was, it was a great time and we've been friends since. And I'm hoping in Dallas uh, next year we get to meet for the first time, which would be great. So anyway, I'm, I'm super, I'm super stoked for that. And like I said, I can't thank Jeff enough for coming on the show and then coming on again later and doing another interview with me so I could have uh, just an interview by himself on the show. So lots of fun. Um, check out Breaker and Bane's Power Hour. We drop a show every Sunday. Check out our Patreon. Uh, we just re-tiered it if you are interested in that. Uh, we're going to drop you a lot more new content, including new podcasts, new video podcasts possibly, which we'll release details on that soon. Patreon.com forward slash BBPH. We have tiers of $1, $3, $5, and now $10. Uh, we kind of restructured things, but uh, you get a lot for uh, for your money. So it's definitely worth checking out. And anyone who is a patron, we definitely thank you very, very much. And uh, my t-shirts, ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash Brian Breaker. Redbubble, BBPH.Redbubble.com. WaterManeuver.net. Search by store for Breaker Remains Power Hour. Big underscore Bane has a shirt store there as well. And I think that's it. Next week's Elvis Aliaga. And uh, before I go, I must say, in the words of the great Johnny Valentine, I cannot make you believe that wrestling is real, but I sure as hell can make you believe that I am. I'm Brian Breaker, and thank you guys for checking out. You know it's fake, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rap for a minute, and I can stand toe to toe with the best of the minute. 
Don't give a damn about critics They talk a lot but at the end of the night I'm selling the tickets All the tough guys avoid me The ladies all adore me Paparazzi record me I can put on a clinic All my opposers are born